Two verses of scripture, verse 16 and 17. Solomon wrote, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies until the day break and the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bethel until the day break and the shadows flee away. Jeremiah, the sixth chapter, Jeremiah wrote about the shadows as well. Verses 2 through 4, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. The shepherds with their flocks shall come unto her. They shall pitch their tents against her round about. They shall feed everyone in his place. Prepare you war against her. Arise, and let us go up at noon. Woe unto us, for the day goeth away, for the shadows of the evening are stretched out. Woe unto us. The dispensational day of grace is going away. The dispensational day of God's grace is just about over, and the shadows are beginning to appear. The shadows. Everybody say, the shadows. Turn to somebody, greet them, smile at them, frown at them, throw something at them, wake them up. Thank you, sis. Now, you may be seated. Not that you needed my permission, but you're waiting for it anyway. The poetic words of Solomon stand in very stark and direct contrast to the prophetic vision of Jeremiah. So the poetic words stand in contrast to the prophetic words. Solomon refers to the breaking of the day when the shadows flee away. But Jeremiah says that when the day goes away, then the shadows of the evening not only appear, but they are stretched out. They seem to consume almost everything. So Solomon speaks about when the shadows disappear, and Jeremiah speaks about when the shadows reappear. Solomon defers to romantic liaisons, which should ring a bell in every husband's mind right now because next Tuesday is Valentine's Day. Yes, I know it is a corporate holiday to sell cards and chocolate, but you better get with the program anyway. So Solomon defers to the romantic liaisons that avail themselves only until the shadows have dissolved or until they have disappeared into the sunlight. But Jeremiah warns Zion of just the opposite. He warns Zion of how the approaching shadows of the night will impair their ability to defend the city against their enemy. 
So while one speaks of romance, the other speaks of war, and to some married couples, there's not that much difference between the two. <laughs> a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Nevertheless, with the help of the Lord, I hope to speak to you for a few minutes about coming out of the shadows. It's going to apply differently to different people, uh, and it will be a, uh, approached a little bit different based on who you are, what you're living right now, what you're going through right now, and so on. But mountains are commonly mentioned throughout the Bible, and they are used both literally and metaphorically. In one respect, the mountain may represent a hindrance. The mountain may represent an overwhelming obstacle or something that is in the way of your progress. But in other cases, many cases, uh, the mountain represents the pinnacle of revelation. It represents a place where God meets with men, where God reveals himself, his power, his presence, his will, and his glory. In Psalms 48, verses 1 and 2, says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Now, while this message is not about mountains per se, we're going to dwell on the mountain for a while because they uh, mountains invariably cast very large shadows. Mountains cast very large shadows across huge volumes of landscape and upon all those that live in the lowlands. The Mount of God and other significant elevations appear at precipitous times in Israel's history. And one thing is clear about the Mount of God. When you are on the Mount of God, nothing can cast a shadow upon you because you're in the highest elevation of his purpose, his power, and his will. But Psalms 91 weighs in on this, the shadows, and speaks of it in verses 1 and 2. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Then he says, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him will I trust. Unfortunately, there are other things that can cast a shadow, a pall over your life. And those things are the shadows that we're going to speak about to you here today. The highest mountain in the world is found in the Himalayan mountain range, rises 29,035 feet or five and a half miles in the air. The weather on Mount Everest is very extreme. The temperatures reach as low as 78 degrees below zero. That's without the chill factor, with winds that commonly exceed 150 miles per hour. Of the ten highest mountains in the world, eight of them are in Nepal, Everest, of course, being the highest. Kathmandu is the city of Nepal. 
I like that name, Katmandu. It just got a ring to it, Katmandu. I, I guess I ought to go there sometime. It's probably not all it's cut out to be, but the capital city of Nepal is a vibrant city. It has a population of over one million people. It sets, however, 100 miles from Mount Everest. Due to its proximity to the mount, which draws many people there every year, uh, they have a very large tourist trade. Because of the constant stream of tourists, it is known for its internet cafes, its very uh, high-class motels, guest houses, fine restaurants, gift shops, and everything that goes along with tourism that we are most familiar with in southwest Florida. Most people, however, go to Kathmandu. They're not there to face the dangers associated with scaling the frozen peaks of Mount Everest. They're not there to endure the extreme weather conditions associated with such high altitudes, but tens of thousands or perhaps even greater numbers than that of visitors who go to Kathmandu every year are only there to observe. They're only there to view the majesty and the beauty of this glorious mount, and they do so from a place of comfort and safety. I suppose that this lends itself uh, to the unfortunate reality that some people only go to church so they can view God's majesty and power from a place of comfort and safety. We don't want to get too close. You know, when we were kids, Mom always said, don't get too close to the fire. And we did anyway. And some of us have marks on our bodies to prove it. Don't touch that stove. Now, when, when, when I was really little, my grandma and grandpa had the old wood stove. You cooked on the old wood stove. Remember the old little thing you'd pick, you know, have to put wood in the stove before you can even cook a bowl of oatmeal. And I remember, I remember mom telling me, don't touch that stove. But, you know, we have to find out for ourselves whether she's really telling us the truth. And so most of us have found out the hard way that mom was right about just about everything she had to say. So there are people that have no intention of scaling the cascading peaks of commitment or facing the extreme conditions that truly a truly spiritual life will require. But we can look at it from a safe uh, distance and take some pictures and get some souvenirs and then everything will be fine. But according to the demographical statistics that were posted just last month, by the way, January of 2023, this was amazing to me, that the nation of Nepal nestled in the middle of the Himalayas, just, just uh, south of Tibet and China, has a population, get this, 30 million people. 30 million people. That is mind-boggling to me. And it gets even more mind-boggling, as you will see, because the Nepalese people are a very industrious people. Uh, they're an entrepreneurial people and a creative people. Of course, Everest has provided them the opportunity to extend these gifts and, and these qualities uh, in their city and in the nation of Nepal. So they built roads, modern roads, highways, hospitals. Uh, they built universities. They've, they've built a monument to their success and their ingenuity. But in spite of this, the first recorded attempt to climb Mount Everest was not made by a Nepalese man or woman. The first attempt to climb Mount Everest 
was by a group of British climbers in 1922, over a hundred years ago. And the first expedition, they went in, in uh, 1921 just to scope the mountain, just to plan their ascent and to look at the, the challenges that were before them. They, I mean, they planned this thing out, spent a great deal of time, effort, and money to, before they even prepared to climb the mountain. But all the while, no one from Nepal had done it. it, it it's not surprising that they failed. If you climb Mount Everest now, there are, there are things that have been placed there for you to help you reach the top. But it's, it's no surprise that they failed. And following this first attempt, uh, the mighty Everest would repulse the next nine expeditions and two solo attempts to climb the mount. There's no question that it was truly a formidable task. Thus, the ascent to the world's highest mountain proved to be a daunting endeavor that was now, by that time, beginning to seem impossible. Men were beginning to believe that nobody will ever ascend to the top of Mount Everest. One of the British climbers who were uh, intent on climbing Mount Everest uh, he was a part of one of the British groups, but tried to do it on his own by himself, failed twice, but survived. He was asked by a reporter, why in the world are you determined to climb this seemingly impossible mountain? His answer was succinct, very short, only three words, because it's there. And that's where we got that saying. Unfortunately, him and his partner, Andrew Devine, would perish on the mount during his third attempt to climb Mount Everest. Nevertheless, on May 29, 1953, Edmund Hillary and a Sherpa by the name of Tenzing Norgay became the first two people to make it to the summit and, uh, of course, to return safely down the side of the mountain. But there's something about this that just blows my mind. I know it doesn't take that much. I understand that. But... There's something about this that's just absolutely astounding to me, and it captivated me so much that, that uh, I wanted to talk to you about it today. It's astounding to me that in all of the years, actually thousands of years, you can go back, of that part of the world was populated, in all of the thousands of years, that not one man among the industrious and creative people of Nepal ever attempted to climb Mount Everest. Not one man, not one person ever made an attempt. There were no laws that prevented them from climbing the mount. There, was, there were no local regulations. There were no government controls. Now, modern Nepal has changed through the years. The government, they were a monarchy for years. They are now a democratic, uh, have a democratic form of government. But there was nothing that would prevent any man legally from climbing the mount. The only thing I can figure out, the only answer that I have to this perplexing question is why nobody from Nepal or from that part of the world ever tried to climb Mount Everest. They were just simply culturally indifferent to the prospect. 
they were culturally indifferent. You've got to be careful because our culture is indifferent to God. And to go with the indifference of this culture and to enter into eternity without God, it will not be good for you. You can't follow the, 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 the current of our culture. They're not going toward God. They are going away from God. Perhaps they had succumbed to the law of familiarity that we spoke to you about a couple months ago or so. The law of familiarity, well, it's been there ever since I was born. What's the big deal? It's just a big high rock. They become so familiar with it that they, they lived in the shadow of this mountain for so long that they just accepted it as part of the landscape. What's the big deal? My mind raced uh, backwards to, uh, I think it was Uriah, who grew up with the ark of God in his home. Dad was a Benadab, had the ark of God. He grew up with it, just the ark of God. It's just a piece of furniture. What's the big deal? So when it's on an ark and, it, and an oxen stumbled, he just reached up and said, I got this. Yeah, and then the Lord struck him dead. You don't touch the ark. Only the Kohathites can handle the ark. We become so familiar with this that it's not any big deal. It's just a Sunday service, just Sunday church. What's the big deal about this? The law of familiarity. My God. So whether the men of Nepal were content to live within sight of the majestic peak or whether they just believe the lie. It doesn't bother me, sir. <laughs> whether they just believe the lie that it was, in fact, impossible. I don't know. But I do know that millions of Nepalese people found themselves somewhere in the shadow of this mountain every single day of their lives. And yet they were never drawn to conquer the mountain. Nothing ever spoke to them, come and climb me. Nothing ever said with, within even one man in Nepal, I wonder what the view is like from the highest peak of Mount Everest. So it took men who were willing to travel over 4,500 miles, and that's direct by plane, 4,500 miles from Great Britain, risking life, fortune, and future to prove that Everest could be subjugated to the ingenuity and perseverance of mankind. It took men to travel 4,500 miles when there were men living right there. They could have walked to the base of the mount and began their ascent, but not one man did. To this day, 70 years later, only 6,098 individuals have climbed or made it to the summit of Everest. 7,000 Nepalese men have done it, but not till the British showed up. 7,000 Nepalese, according to statistics, have now climbed Everest, but the thought never entered their mind till the Man with the British accent said, want to come with us? Wow, okay. 311 climbers have died on the mount, 200 whose bodies have never been recovered. 
But don't you think it's odd? I mean, don't you think it's really odd that these people lived right there and not one of them ever attempted to climb the mount? Ever had the thought, the idea, I'm going to climb that mountain one day. Until the British arrived with climbing gear and with courage and with determination, I think it's very odd. So I guess I could ask the question, whatever this mountain represents in your life, what are you waiting for? What are we waiting for as a church? What in the world are we waiting for? I remember Brother Umbari from uh, Hungary years ago. He said to us, he said, uh, we may have to send missionaries to America one day. Now, this was, this was 40 years ago he said this, and things were bad then. He said, it may come the day when we will be sending from around the world missionaries to evangelize America. That's how bad things are getting in America. Brother Umbari's long gone by now to his heavenly reward if he could only see things today. What are we waiting for? Of course, I'm not talking about Mount Everest or any other physical, literal mount. But how long are we going to allow ourselves to be arrested in the shadows of the impossible? How long are we going to be afraid to pursue careers or businesses or opportunities because it appears to be impossible? There's actually a man right now who believes that we're going to build a civilization on Mars. And let me tell you something about that. If God tarried his coming for another hundred years, man would do it. Man would do it. You want to know why the Lord's not going to tarry for 100 years? Because he's not going to let man reach Mars. Not going to happen. What I'm talking about is arrested in the shadows of fear. In the shadow of what appears to be impossible. Living in sight of the miraculous. Living in sight of an opportunity. Living in sight of conquering something. But never ever pursuing it. I could go a step further and speak to some of the members of our church, say how long are we going to pursue and build our own kingdoms overshadowed by the promise of apostolic revival. It's time that we come out of the shadows. I recall 12 disciples who were sent forth by their Lord and uh, they were the first to validate the authority that was in the name of Jesus Christ. And through that name, they subjugated devils and demons to that glorious name, liberating all of us hereafter to the dangers of darkness and the powers of darkness. Thank you, Peter and James and John and the 12 disciples that said, you don't need to fear the devil anymore. You don't need to fear the darkness anymore. 
I'm talking about 12 men that walked into the unknown and came back rejoicing because devils were subject unto them through that name. You want to know one of the reasons we're steadfast and living for God? I'll tell you why. The other day, I'm out, we're getting the car, and I look over to the front window, and I see something on the ground, and I said, what in the world is that? It looks like the head of a rabbit. And so I got out of the car, and I walked over. It was the head of a little rabbit about that big, eyes wide open, head either wrenched off or severed cleanly, just a little bit of blood where the, where the stem of the neck was on the ground. And I stood there thinking there's no animal could have possibly done this. There's no trail of blood. There's no trail of fur. There's no indication that a predator had got a hold of this uh, animal in our yard or anywhere. And so I called Brother Daniel. He said, hey, man, what do you think about this? He said, yeah, that's what it it could, that's what it sounds like to me. You got somebody in your neighborhood that practices witchcraft, that don't like who you are. You know what I did? I said, you know, don't worry about it. There's a bloodline around my house. The reason that rabbit's sitting there, it can't get any closer than the bloodline. It can't cross the bloodline. Go ahead and cast your spells and do your witchcraft. You can't get any closer than the bloodline. It's not a bunch of made-up stuff. This is real. This thing is real. Thank you, Peter, James, and John, for giving us courage and faith to stand against powers of darkness and wickedness in this hour. But I need to point something out, and that is that man was not made to climb to the heights of Everest, and yet he did it anyway. God did not make man for those high altitudes and those cold temperatures. God did not give men the lung capacity to breathe the thin air that was uh, above 26,000 feet. In the death zone, as it's called, a human being can only live anywhere from 16 to 20 hours, and that is only if they're in tip-top physical condition, unless, of course, they have oxygen. But while God did not make man's physical body for such high altitudes and for such extreme conditions, he did place a spirit within man that said, I am going to stand on that mount one day. He placed something in man that says, I know it's impossible, but I can figure out a way to do it. He put a spirit in man that would not let him rest until he figured out a way to reach the summit. So it was only a matter of time before men would land on the airport of Kathmandu and they would walk past the Nepalese men who had sat there for thousands of years with never the idea, never the heart, and never the intent to climb up that mount. They walked past men sitting in the shadow of perceived impossibility, saying all along, we're going to make it. We're going to conquer that mount. We're going to prove that this can be done. And then walking past those sitting in the shadow of the impossible, they began their ascent up the side of the mount. There are some people who have lived their entire lives in the shadow of some perceived impossibility. 
I can tell you that there are a lot of things that are impossible for us as human beings. A lot of things are impossible. There are others that are trapped in the shadow of some unsolicited circumstance. Some find themselves in the demoralizing shadow that just absolutely defies your release. The voices around you said you can't. You can't come out of it. You can never leave this. This is, you belong to me. The shadow owns you. So something is keeping us from enjoying the exhilaration of what God has promised us. So I've been here, sent here today to tell you that God has not called any of us to fail. God has not appointed us to failure. He did not die on the cross so that his church could fail this mission in the end time. But it's important that you understand something. It's important that you understand that your perception of what is impossible is not incorrect. The Bible has something to say about that which is impossible. Not a whole lot, really. Interestingly enough, of the 783,137 words in the Bible, the King James Bible, there are only nine times where the word impossible is mentioned. And all nine times... It is a spiritual oxymoron. Please observe the following, Matthew 17 and 20. Now, if you're facing anything in your life that's impossible, listen up. Jesus said unto them, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. What's the prerequisite for such incredible power? You just need a little bit of faith. A mustard seed size of faith. Speaking of another matter, Jesus said in Mark 10 and 27, with men... It is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Apostolic praise tabernacle. Will you please start setting your sights on the things that are impossible for us to accomplish? Stop looking at the little stuff where you can do it without God. Set your sights on things that you will need the miraculous power of God. Well, I must ask you at this point, is God for you or against you? Now, you would assume that everybody would automatically reply, well, God is for me. Not so. The enemy has convinced many people that God is not for them. 
But I'm here to tell you that God is for you. Romans 8.31 says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Okay, I get it. It's not just a who. It's something other than a who. But that's good because that word that's translated who can also be translated what. So if God is for us, then who or what? Is there anything that doesn't fall into the category of who or what? No. Nothing can be against us. Not successfully anyway. Gabriel spoke to Mary's astonishment. And he tells her in Luke 1, For with God, nothing shall be impossible. When the look of consternation came upon her face, when Gabriel said, you will be overshadowed by the, the power of the highest, and he will conceive, conceive in you, and you will bring forth a son, she's going, and he said, I know what you're thinking. I can read your mind because I, I am a messenger angel of God. And he says, for with God, don't worry about it, Mary. I know it's tough to grasp right now. But with God, nothing shall be impossible. You know, that removes all ifs. What if? It takes all of that out of the equation because nothing is impossible with God. Then he said in Luke 18, 27, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Now let me speak about uh, the end time for just a moment. There is a, a lot of saints, Now I'm going to be honest with you. I'm just going to be frank. I'm just going to put it out there. You can, you can take it or leave it. A lot of people in this church are beginning to faint at the thought of what God is going to require of the apostolic church between now and his coming. You tell me it's not going on. You mention the word COVID and people shrink. COVID smoked. I serve a God that's bigger than COVID. COVID has only been a tactic of, of the enemy to plant fear into the minds of people. That's all it is. Disease has been around for, for ever since the beginning of time. And the world wants us to be afraid and to cower in fear. So we're beginning to faint at the thought of what God may require of the end time church. But he's not sent us here to leave the summit of apostolic revival unattended. Hebrews 12 and 3. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. God's not sent us here to live in the shadow of what was or the shadow of what could be. Without question, our humanity is not made for what lies before us. But I have a word from the Lord for all of us. God's grace is sufficient. It's easier to stand at the base of this granite monument called End Time Revival. Listen to me now. And talk about the day somewhere in our future when we will don tackle and gear and begin our ascent. It's always not today. 
But there will be a day when we will don tackling gear and we're going to make our way to that, that quest. We're going to reach that summit. Hebrews 12 and 1 weighs in on this. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, and I know there's more to it, but that's all we're going to read. Lay aside weights and all that stuff. Okay. We're compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. In the early part of the 21st or 20th century, apostolic power and precept was overshadowed by heresy, by false doctrine, and by religious traditions that were cauterized into Christianity by Constantine, emperor of Rome. For centuries and centuries, the Christian world lived in the shadow of powerless, ceremonial, and impotent religion. But there arose men who were restless, men who got up and walked past those that were sitting in the shadows of tradition. They were not content to live in that shadow any longer. Men that forged the path like the Britons, forged the path right through Nepal under the mount, and began figuring out a way to climb Mount Everest. These men forged a new path that would take us beyond the spiritual heights that had been attained over the last 1,800 years. They sacrificed everything. If you've never read about them, they were run out of towns. They were beaten. Crowds and gangs used to gather outside of the tent revivals and the brush arbors and throw rotten eggs at them as they preached. They sacrificed everything in pursuit of a great outpouring of the Holy Ghost upon their generation. I'm referring to oneness Pentecostal pioneers of the early movement of the 20th century, and names came to me very quickly, like Charles Parham and William J. Seymour, Frank Bartleman, O.F. Foss, G.T. Haywood, and the, and the names go on from there. We'd give way to the next generation of oneness Pentecostals, men like James Kilgore, men like Billy Cole, Jaron Mangan, Lee Stone King, along with an army of faithful men and women who laid the foundation upon which we now stand. Missionaries left everything, comfort, careers, jobs, family, safety, security, to carry this one God apostolic message into the uncharted and demon-infested nations of the world. Home missionaries carried this gospel across the plains of this great nation, planting churches everywhere. So the writer of Hebrews is correct. We are compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. And I've heard it said for years that we stand 
upon the shoulders of giants. But I ask the church today, are we standing on their shoulders or are we resting in their shadows? Paul wrote to the saints in Rome, Romans 1.14, he said, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise, and much dissertation could be added about that because we concur. However, we're also debtors to those that have went before us. We're debtors to valiant and faithful men and women of God who fearlessly came out of the shadows that false religion had cast over the entire world. We're debtors to all those who walked past millions who were content to sit in the shadow of status quo, lukewarm Christianity, and boldly declare the message of one God and Acts 2.38, salvation. We've heard it preached and taught for many years that we must never remove the ancient landmarks. But it's also true that we must not let this apostolic one God truth die with us. We must not be the last generation except for the coming of the Lord that is willing to sacrifice all to declare this message. In the book of Ezra, there's another familiar story here. Uh, it talks about the completion of the foundation of the temple. The Jewish people have been taken captive to Babylon. They've now been allowed to return. They're going to rebuild the city, the temple and everything. And now they have, they have completed the foundation of the temple. The Bible says that all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Whoa. If you go look at it, it had been over a hundred years to reach that point. But it's also written that many of the priests and Levites, the chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice. So it's written in the 13th verse of chapter 3 of Ezra, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. What is my point? My point is that, okay, the foundation's done. Now let's get back to work. We sit on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, 
being the chief cornerstone, the foundation we did not lay was laid in the blood of the pioneers of the, of the early last century. Now let's get back to work. Elisha and Elijah, they were on their way. That was going to be the day now when Elijah was going to go to heaven. Lucky him, he wouldn't have to die. God was going to just take him. When they came to the Jordan River, it's written in 2 Kings 2 and 8. Uh, need to be succinct if I can. Elijah took his mantle, wrapped it together, smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither so that they went over on dry ground. I want to point out to you that they did not sit there for three days and hew out a canoe. What they did was impossible, but they did it anyway. came to pass when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I will do for thee before I be taken away from thee. Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of my spirit be upon me. Then he said that, Thou hast a hard thing, nevertheless, if thou see me when I'm taken from thee, it shall be unto thee, but if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on, talked that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and the horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. The pioneers and the stalwart men and women of the oneness Pentecostal movement are no longer with us. That is no great news to anyone here. But they did not leave us empty-handed. They, they did not leave us. I don't, they didn't go up in chariots of fire. They went up, but not in chariots of fire. But they did not leave us empty-handed. Not only did they leave us a strong and stable apostolic foundation upon which to build, they left us something else. They left us an apostolic mantle of anointing and power. I want you to picture that apostolic mantle of anointing and power. It says in verse 13, Going back to the story of, of Elisha and Elijah, he took up also, that's Elisha, took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters, said, where's the Lord God of Elijah? And he also had smitten the waters. When he had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. So I'm, I want to just tell you in relation to this, Elijah or Elisha, I always, you know, when you get them, you can't talk about both of them. <laughs> it's like Everly and Ellery, and how do you do that? <laughs> I mean, you, know, you must catch yourself all the time. But Elisha was not content to live in Elijah's shadow. Listen, man, he walked with Elijah for 10 years whole years mentored by this major prophet of Israel. 
But he was determined to do something after his mentor went up to heaven. He was determined to cast his own shadow upon his generation. He could have taken the old prophet's mantle. Please understand this. He could have immediately delivered it to the Jerusalem uh, Historical uh, Museum of Antiquities. He could have taken this mantle. It might have probably would have brought him great fame and perhaps even fortune. He, it could have become a memento to him, framed and put on a wall. And Hey, man, look at that. That tells it all. That, that, that is Elijah's mantle. Instead, he picks it up and walks down to the Jordan River. He did exactly what he saw his mentor do. Mentor do. He smote the waters and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? I want to ask the question this morning. Where is the Lord God of William J. Seymour? Man, do I feel that. I'm speaking to fear right now. Where's the Lord God of Charles Parham? Where's the Lord God of Billy Cole that stepped into Thailand, infested by devils, and brought a revival in that nation? Where's the Lord God of the men and women that have went before us and declared a Jesus' name renaissance in their world? Read about them. Remember them. Honor them. Memorialize them. But for God's sake, don't let what they left us end up in a museum somewhere. Musicians, please join me on the platform. Thank you so much for all you do. I remember when an apostolic preacher, while we were sitting in his office on a Monday night, opened the word of God to Matthew 28, 19. For we therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. I remember sitting on an ottoman in his office, meaning there was no back to it, and I received a revelation. I hadn't went to an altar yet. I hadn't repented of my sins yet. I received a revelation of one God right there. And I remember him talking to my wife and I about being baptized in Jesus' name and how all of our sins would be washed away, removed. And I'm only 24 years old, but I had accumulated uh, enough sins. I needed something to do something with them. I needed help. I wasn't an alcoholic. I wasn't a drug addict. Newly married, everything going great, living in Fort Walton Beach, working a job, the whole life in front of us. But when I learned that I could be baptized in Jesus' name and all my sins would be gone, are you kidding me? Who would not want to do that? So the night we waited down into the, it was after midweek service, I think maybe Sunday night, I don't remember, it was dark. Waited, we went, they didn't have a baptistry in the church because they always like going down to the bay. And I remember I wouldn't take my shoes off because I was afraid of the stuff down in the water, you know, the critters. 
I was baptized with my shoes on. Did it work? You better believe it worked. What I'm saying to you is that's what the apostles preached. That's what the pioneers of the oneness Pentecostal movement of the 20th century preached. It's what we're still preaching today because it still works today. So I just don't think I could live a Christian life. Nobody can until your sins are all taken away. You're filled with God's spirit and you become a new creature in Jesus Christ. Katie and I have been living for God now for 49 years. We've seen a lot of people come and go. You want to know what has kept us? I can only speak for me. My wife would probably have a different answer. But I can tell you here and now. Because I remember the old me, and I, didn't li- I don't like the old me that I was. I didn't like the old me that used every profane word you could think of and even made a few up as I went along. I didn't like the old me that that smoked dope and, and got, I didn't like the old me that, that used alcohol and the old me. I didn't like the old me. I, I like what God has done in my life. And without him, I'd be the old me. I'm saying this, if you want remission of sins, we have water. I suppose it's warm, right? We have robes. We invite you to experience what it feels like to come up out of the water and know that every thought you ever thought, everything you ever did, every word you ever spoke, everything is removed. And I've always said, and I say it today, God, why didn't you just fill me with the Holy Ghost and take me right then? Because that's the time to leave, right? I think it's time that we begin to cast our own shadow. Our own shadow. If you stand with me. Um, One final story, and we'll see what God's going to do. We've all heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The three Hebrew children, they were not little children, but they were probably adolescent. They hadn't reached manhood yet. Came a time when Nebuchadnezzar put up a golden image. Everybody played the music, and everybody had to bow down to the image, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, well, we're not going to do it. So they refused, and it was brought to Nebuchadnezzar's attention, so they brought these three young boys to the king who was just very angry with them. And he said, now, if you don't bow, we're going to give you one more chance. If you don't bow this time, we're going to throw you into a burning, fiery furnace. And so... In the third chapter of Daniel, it records their answer to the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and says to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, Look, they were not cavalier. They were not full of hubris and pride. 
They didn't take the situation lightly for all they knew. They're getting ready to burn to a crisp. They said, you know, we're pretty steadfast on this. We're, we've talked about this. We're determined. We're not careful. And the answer we're giving you. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. So then the furnace was heated seven times hotter than it was before. And there was no way. We know, we know what happened. I'm not going to tell the whole story. They were thrown in. They come out. They survived. Even their clothes didn't smell like fire. But the point is, they didn't know they were coming out. As far as they know, this is it, friends. It's not the most pleasant way to, to die, but they were willing, if necessary. And so the question is, how is it? And I've asked this myself, and, and so I'm asking of you. How is it that they were so fearless and bold? How is it that these three boys, all alone in a far-off country by themselves, were so fearless and brave and bold? I, I believe there's really only one answer now. Perhaps you could come up with others. But I believe that they had made the decision, all three of them, that they would rather burn in the furnace than live the rest of their lives in the shadow of compromise and defeat. We'd rather die now in the furnace than live in the shadow of idolatry, the shadow of compromise. Someone said this, in faith there's enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. So what is the thing that we face? What is the thing that keeps us in the shadow. You want to know what it is? It's adversity and fear. Adversity and fear. <coughs> it's paralyzing God's people. It's paralyzing people who are non-Christian. Adversity and fear is the paralysis of 2023. You think it's over? You think they're done? Casting the spirit of fear upon us? They're not done. They're just getting started. There has to be a place, a point when God's people says, I've had enough. I am not going to be afraid anymore. We're going to wade into the unknown and believe that by the grace of God, we will stand on the summit of apostolic revival and nothing will be impossible unto us. Some of you are facing some challenges, rather in your personal life or your spiritual life. I say it's time to come out of the shadows. We have some of the greatest preachers of all time in our fellowship right now, preaching the apostolic message. They had careers in football and basketball and baseball, millionaire careers, millionaire contracts. They walked away from it to preach this gospel. We're surrounded by men that had lucrative positions and, and, and corporations and businesses walked away from it all to declare one God, Jesus' name, Acts 2.38, salvation. It's time to come out of the shadows and into the unknown because that is when we will see the miraculous. That is when we will see 
miracles, signs, and wonders. You want to see somebody risen from the dead? You want to see somebody rise from the dead? Somebody's got to die here. Somebody's got to, their heart's got to stop beating. Somebody's got to fall out on the floor with no pulse for us to see that kind of a miracle. You say, I don't want it to be me. So we just, we steer away from the impossible and the difficult and the hard stuff. That's why we're not seeing miracles. You want to see somebody healed of cancer? Somebody's got to get cancer. You know that word is one of the most feared words in America. When the doctor looks at somebody across the desk and says, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you have cancer. You know what cancer is to an apostolic? It's either an opportunity for God to perform a miracle or it's a one-way trip to streets of gold. Saints, we've got things turned upside down. Preacher got a phone call one time. He says, guy on the other says, I'm coming to church tonight. I'm going to blow your brains out. You know what the preacher told him? You can't threaten me with heaven. Do we really believe what we say we believe? Then why are we so afraid of everything? Hezekiah was sick. The prophet goes to him. Isaiah says, yep, Lord told me, you're sick unto death. You're not going to recover. Walks out. He's walking through the parlor, through the courtyard. And the king, Hezekiah, turns his face to the wall and cries, God. I've been good, King. I've been good. All of a sudden, the Lord spoke to Isaiah, so you need to go back. He walked back up there and said, okay, the Lord told me he's going to give you 15 more years. Listen to me now. I'm a, he's going to give you 15 more years. Hezekiah, Ooh, yeah, but how do I know for sure? So the prophet says, all right, God will give you a sign. In the dial of Ahaz, it's a sundial, he said, he will cause the shadow to go forward 10 degrees or go back 10 degrees, which you want him to do. Now get this. Hezekiah wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, so he says, well, it's nothing for God to take the shadow forward 10 degrees. I mean, he only has to change the rotation of the earth and the planet system to do that. He said, but that's nothing for him, so I want the shadow to go back 10 degrees. What does that mean to you? It means sometimes God will move your shadow, but when he does, you've got to get up and go. Sometimes God will move the shadow for you, but you better not sit around after he moves it. When God moves your shadow, it's time to get up and make a move to do the will of God and the purpose of God in your life. And with that, I'd like to open the altar because there's some people here that are living under the shadow of despair. You're living under the shadow of fear. You're living under the shadow of depression. And you need to come out from under the shadows. I know nobody wants to come, so let's just come and stand at the altar this morning. Come on. Come on.
What's overshadowing you right now? What is it? What kind of shadow are you living under? Is it, is it some infirmity? Is it, is it because the doctor said you have a genetic propensity for cancer or Hodgkin's disease or something? You know what? My wife came home not long from the doctor. She said the doctor, told, I said, don't say it. Don't you speak it. Because don't you let the doctor put that on you. Don't let the doctor put something on you that doesn't belong to you. Because once you do, you got to come out of that shadow somewhere. So don't even go in there. Don't even go there. Praise God. Won't you lift your hands right now? You're, you, you come up here because you went out of the shadows. Go ahead, worship team, lead us in a little praise.
anybody here know what buyer's remorse is? When that, about three months, the new car smell was gone and you got a high payment pay every month. I guarantee you, if you give your life unto the Lord, you will never have buyer's remorse. A lot of Christians have knee problems. It's from kicking ourselves for waiting so long to give our lives unto Jesus. Where you at? Looking for somebody. Sister Cheryl, you have a testimony? I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise will continually be in my mouth. And you know, I have found this knot in my head, and so I have been monitoring it, trying to see if it's going to go away. And I was having headaches real bad. I would be sitting down there in my head and my eyes would be hurting so bad. I'd be thinking, man, I want to lay down. But I didn't. I would go around praising the Lord. And as I start praising the Lord, the headaches start leaving. So then I went to the doctor, back to seeing the doctor. And the doctor told me that it was a tumor. You know, I was not worried. I was not worried about no tumor. I gave it to the Lord. Because all that I have been through in life, God has shown me he would never leave me. He would never forsake me. He would be there for us even until the end of the world. And he let us know that we go through things because he wants us to learn how to trust him. As we go through things, that's when we learn how to trust him. So my doctor was saying she wanted to send me to this specialist so I can take treatment. And um, so one day I was sitting by the pool and I was reading that, that, um, that book that the pastor had gave us to read. And as, as I was reading, it talked about lay your hands on it and, and, and speak the name of Jesus. So I just laid my hand on that lump and I just was praising the name of Jesus. I was pleading the blood and putting the name of Jesus. He, I didn't tell nobody. I didn't tell not one person. I didn't even tell my family. I just gave it to the Lord because a lot of times we can just keep speaking. We can speak it and we can just speak it. And as we speaking it, it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. You know, God gave me so much peace. I didn't have no fear. So one day I was getting ready to do my daily routine walk and I was going to walk around the park and the devil tried to come and tell me, now when you leave and when you walk around the park, you're going to fall out and you're going to die. I told him, don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. And, and I said, I'm going, and as I was going around the park, I was just praying as I was going around the park. And I thought about, here is gain, but to leave this world is God. You know, when we leave God, when, when God allow us to be here, it's for others. But when we leave, we're going to be with the Lord. So what can he tell me? What can he tell me? You know, God's word let us know that he's going to take us to a better place. I'm not worried. I don't fear death. I don't fear death because I know God got something better for me. So, and, and the way I look at it is God got the last say. So whatever he says, I learned how to depend on him. I don't ask God to change things for me. I just accept his will. What is your will, Lord? What is your will for me? To, uh, for me? Let me know your will. I seek his will and let him. So to make a long story short, 
I went to, I wasn't even worried. I didn't lose no sleep. I, I was having my headaches. I was still having headaches. My head was hurting so bad. It was times I used to have to put ice on my head to relax to go to sleep. But I was not worried because God gave me peace. So as I went to this doctor, they told me they was going to give me treatments. He said, you don't have nothing to worry about. And I'm saying, I wasn't worried anyway. It's, it's still here, but when they when they went to do the treatments, I don't need treatments. No tumor is here. Oh, Sister Martha, I remember. You remember that week we was back in here in the prayer room and you came to me and you started praying with me? I had just got that diagnosed that I had this tumor in my head when you came and prayed for me. And then after you prayed for me, you gave me a word from the Lord. And I said, that's the kind of prayers I want. Somebody that don't know my business. I don't have to tell you my business. I give it to God and God will work it out. And when I left here that Sunday, I was so encouraged. I was like, Lord, I thank you because I know that was from you. You didn't forget about me. You thought about me and you didn't forget about me. You had that sister to come and pray with me and give me a word I said Lord I thank you and I was so I could hardly I was going down the drive and I was so happy trying to drive thank you Lord crying tears were coming out of my ears and my eyes of joy I was thanking the Lord because he used you to encourage me to tell me everything is going to be all right which I wasn't worried I knew everything was going to be all right He's so good. He is so good. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and he will never let you down. He will never disappoint you. He's going to always be there for you. Believe his word. And, and you know what? Take it to God. You don't have to bring it to me. You don't have to take it to him. You don't have to take it to her. Give it to God, and he is the one that's going to work it out for you. Got a reason to shout. Thank you, Jesus. We have a reason to rejoice. Thank you, Lord. She has one more thing. This is a addendum number one. I just remember one thing I did say, Lord, I don't want my head cut on. I don't want no surgery where they got to start cutting in my head. That one degree I did say, I don't want that, Lord. And Lord heard my prayers. He heard my prayers. Hallelujah. The worst thing that can happen after you have an MRI on your head is for the doctor to say, well, we didn't find anything. <laughs> God bless you. I do you. God bless y'all in Jesus' name.